Blog Talk Radio. Radio. I am Caroline Chang, your host. Awake to Oneness Radio mission is to inspire the world to awaken to the universal truth of oneness. Spirituality and science are both telling us that we are literally all connected, that we are literally all one. So what you do to another person, you're literally doing to yourself. And when the world awakens to this universal truth of oneness, there will be peace on earth. Today's topic is the biology of belief with Dr. Bruce Lipton. Dr. Bruce Lipton is a leading-edge scientist recognized as a leader in bridging science and spirituality. Spirituality. Bruce began his career as a cell biologist, and he is the author of The Biology of Belief, The Honeymoon Effect, and spontaneous evolution. Welcome to awaken to awake to oneness radio, Bruce. Thank you so uh, much for being with us. I want to thank you very much, Carolina. This for me is a <clears throat> very exciting uh, because I have an opportunity to speak to your wonderful audience about change, the the most important change that's happening in the world right now. So thank you for this uh, platform. Thank well, thank you. I am honored. I I am a big admirer of your work. Um, I just, I am so amazed at what science is, um, today's science is showing, um, and spirituality has been saying it for eons, but science is now backing up all of what spirituality has been saying for many hundreds of years, which is so, it's just so awesome. That, to me, is amazing. But please, um, I am very familiar with your work, but um, some of the listeners may not be. So please share a little of your, your history, your backstory with our listeners today. Okay, you know, and, and I'll, I'll introduce this experiment uh, that I did uh, 48 years ago. Uh, that uh, completely changed my entire scientific career and presaged uh, today's newest uh, insights in biology called epigenetics. So let's start with this. Uh, back about uh, 48 years ago, uh, I was uh, getting my Ph.D. in cellular biology, and I was working at the University of Virginia, and I was cloning stem cells. Now, what's interesting about that is like everybody's heard about stem cells today, 48 years ago, uh, I, I could have uh, had a, a, a small talk uh, on Skype with everyone in the world that knew about uh, stem cells at that time. So I, I had an opportunity to be a pioneer in that field. Uh, and a stem cell, so just briefly to get people to understand it, uh, uh, everybody's body is filled with stem cells. And stem cells are uh, uh, its another way of saying embryonic cell. So mm -hmm. that all of us are, uh, have embryonic cells throughout our body. You say, well, why should we have embryonic cells when we're growing and mature in adults? And the answer is simply this, is that what we know is that every day we lose, and I say this number, and it's so big, it's easy for me to say, but it's a big number, massiveness. It's every day we lose hundreds of billions of our cells from normal death, normal attrition. Cells have a certain lifespan, 
then they die and they have to be replaced. And the relevance, if you're losing hundreds of billions of cells, which is a massive number of cells, the question is, uh, how can you stay alive unless you replace all these cells? And I go, absolutely true. You have to replace them. And I say, well, then how do we replace these cells that die every day? And the answer is, built into our body are stem cells, embryonic cells, whose function it is is to replace these uh, uh, cells, the massive loss of cells every day. So a stem cell is an embryonic cell. What was my experiment? Well, I was growing stem cells in tissue culture, and in tissue culture, uh, we put cells in a plastic dish, but we put them in an environment called culture medium. So they live, uh, cells are like fish, they live in an aquarium, and I make up the, the aquarium fluid called culture medium, and the chemical composition that I create for culture medium is based on the blood composition of the animal from where, the, where I get the cells. So if I'm working with rat cells, uh, I look at the blood from a rat and then try to create a synthetic comparable solution called culture medium that's based on that composition. If I grow human cells, uh, then I look at the composition of human blood and make culture medium based on that. Okay, so here's the story. I put one embryonic stem cell into a petri dish by itself, and it divides every 10 or 12 hours. So first there's one cell, then two, four, eight, and doubles and doubles. And after a week, I've got 50,000 cells in a petri dish. But the most important understanding is they all came from one parent cell, a single parent cell. So by definition, I have 50,000 genetically identical cells in the Petri dish because they all came from the same parent. The experiment was this. I take those genetically identical cells, split them up into three different Petri dishes, and in each dish when I add the culture medium, I change the chemical composition of the culture medium a little bit. So I have three dishes, genetically identical cells in each dish, but a slightly different culture medium in the three different dishes. The result is in one dish, the cells form muscle. In the second dish with a different culture medium, the cells form bone. And in a third dish with yet a different culture medium, the cells form fat cells. The most important question, <laughs> which is profound, is, well, what controls the fate of the cells? Our historic perspective is genes control this. And I go, well, wait a minute. All the cells were genetically identical, so you can't say genes cause muscle, bone, or fat. What was the difference? And the answer was the environment, the culture medium, the chemical composition. And therefore, the fate of the genes was not controlled by themselves, but it was controlled by the environment in which the cells find themselves, that culture medium. And this becomes very important because let's clear up something that almost everybody has heard and it is totally false. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. And that is, everyone has heard the concept, oh, a gene turned on or a gene turned off or a gene turned on and gave me cancer and things like that. Uh, what that implies is that genes are, in a scientific sense, self-actualizing. So what does that mean? I say, oh, genes are capable of making decisions. Should I be on? Should I be off? So a gene turns on, a gene turns off. That's what we say. 100% false. Genes do not turn on and turn off. Genes have no control over their activity at all, zero control. So the whole belief that genes are controlling us is fundamentally flawed. It's not true. Uh, What really is, is important is that it's the environment that are activating or inactivating genetic activity. And I said, okay, so this is a new science because the science that says genes control life, genes turn on and off, that's a science called genetics. And when I say genetics, or I say actually genetic control, what am I saying? Control by genes. If genes control you, as the belief is, the story, then you must recognize by definition you're a victim. 
And I, what, do you, what do you mean, Victor? I said, well, look, did you pick the jeans you came with? <laughs> well, as far as I know, no. Uh, if you don't like the traits you have, can you just change the jeans? The answer is no. So all of a sudden he said, well, you didn't pick the jeans. You can't change the jeans, and the jeans control who you are. Then by definition, you're a victim of your jeans. And that's the belief people bought into that, oh, if there's illness running in my family, cancer, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's, whatever, they say, oh, the genes are causing that. And if I receive this gene, then I will be a victim because the gene will give me a disease. And that's the belief system that we've all been programmed with. I go, okay, first of all, that's entirely false because genes don't control anything. Genes cannot turn it on. A gene is a blueprint. It's exactly what it is. And I say, well, if you understand that that's exactly what it is, then look at this story. You're in an architect's office. She's working on a blueprint. You lean over her shoulder, and you ask the architect, you say, uh, is, your, is your blueprint on or off? Uh, uh, and she would look at you like, well, you're crazy. It's a blueprint. There's no on or off. I go, mm-hmm. precisely. Genes are blueprints. There's no on and off. The science that I was studying back 48 years ago that showed how the environment was activating the genes is now the foundation of a new insight, a new understanding of genetics, and it has a new name. It's called epigenetics. You go, well, it sounds like genetics, sounds like almost the same thing. I go, it's a revolution in this regard. The new science, epigenetics, uh, is different than the old one, genetics. Old one, genetic control means control by genes. That's the belief system most people have. The new science is called epigenetic control. I go, well, what does that mean? I go, well, epi means above. So when I say epigenetic control, I am literally saying control above the genes. Ah, after all these years, we finally recognize genes do not make decisions. Genes do not activate themselves. Genes control nothing. Genes are blueprints. It's the, uh, uh, the biology of the system that activates the genes. In other words, what's going on in the world? In my tissue culture experiments, it was the environment that activated the genes. The culture medium composition determined which genes were going to be activated. The genes didn't make the decision to be muscle or bone. It was a response to the environment. So you go, well, that's a really nice kind of story. It's about cells in a plastic tissue culture dish. But what does it have to do with me as a human? Well, then I say, well, look. Uh, we we have you uh, uh, standing right there, Caroline, and I say, you look in the mirror, what do you see? You say, oh, I see a single human being looking back named Caroline. I go, that's a single organism, a human being. And I go, well, that's a, a misperception. The reason why it's a misperception is your eyes cannot have the, the resolution, the magnification, ability to see. You are made out of 50 trillion cells. By definition, Caroline is a community. When you say Caroline, you're not talking about a single entity. You're talking about a community of 50 trillion citizens. Each cell is the living entity. The community of that entity is you. So I say, well, what does that mean? And it's sort of like a humorous joke if you think about it. But I say, look, you are made out of 50 trillion cells. So so what is a human? A human is a skin-covered Petri dish with 50 trillion cells inside. And I go, and it has culture medium. Yeah, that's the blood. That's why I use the blood as the, the source of, you know, how do I make culture medium in my plastic Petri dish? So it says this, your body is a Petri dish with 50 trillion cells in it. And then I say, and what controls the fate of the cells? Well, whether the cell is in a plastic dish or whether the cell is in a skin dish, it's still the same. It responds to the environment. In the plastic dish, I make culture medium and synthesize it. 
in the skin-covered petri dish called your body, you make culture medium, but it's called blood. And then I say, oh, wait a second. So the chemical composition of the blood, like the chemical composition of the culture medium, is what controls the fate of your 50 trillion cells. I go, yes. And all of a sudden you say, well, okay, the genes didn't control the fate, the, the blood controlled the fate. Then now we're say, okay, you know, following the line. So what controls, what composition should be in your blood? Because the chemical composition of the blood is going to control the genetics. So I say, well, what determines the composition of your blood? And they go, well, the brain is the chemist that, that controls the, the chemistry of the blood. And I go, so, yeah, so what chemistry should a brain put into the blood? I go, ah, it's based on the mind. The perception uh, you see the world with causes certain chemicals to be released from the blood that complement that perception. If you see love in your world, a chemical complement of love, chemistry that goes into the blood from a mind in love, includes things like dopamine for pleasure. So when you fall in love, you feel pleasure. Oxytocin for bonding. When you fall in love, that's the individual you want to bond with, connect with. And very importantly, when you fall in love, you release a chemical called growth hormone. And I say, what does that do? That enhances the vitality of your cells. So when you fall in love, you're making culture medium that has what? Growth hormone gives, enhances your health. I go, yes, you know, it's interesting. When people fall in love, they become healthier. They glow. People say, oh, look, they must be in love. See how they glow? And I go, the glow is what? Cells being healthy in response to a culture medium whose chemistry is complemented to love. I say, the very same person opens their eyes but sees something that scares them. And I say, oh, <clears throat> the chemistry of love? That's not going to be released when a, when a brain perceives you know, fear. When the brain is in that state of stress, it releases stress hormones and inflammatory agents, agents that affect the immune system. I go, oh, so the chemistry of the blood, the culture medium in your body, changes the chemistry based on what you see. And I go, absolutely. And when you see things that scare you, the chemistry of, of stress, actually, uh, if I take the chemistry of the, uh, of the uh, blood of a person in stress and use that to feed the cells in tissue culture, the cells stop growing and begin to die. Protection, stress causes the cells to stop growing. People have always said, yes, fear kills. And I go, yeah, fear kills because when you perceive fear in your mind, the brain translates that into chemistry of stress hormones, which then shut down the system, which if you're in chronic fear, then results in sickness and death. And so all of a sudden I say, well, what, what does all this new meaning mean? Simple, what does it mean? It means this, old story, genetic control. I am a victim. I got these genes, the genes control my health, my behavior, my emotions. And, and so my life is not in my hands, it's in the control of genes. The new science epigenetics is a revolution because it completely turns that around. It says, no, epigenetics says that the fate and activity of your genes is dependent on the environment in which your cells live, which is your body, and the culture medium, which is nourishing them. So the chemistry of the culture medium is controlling the fate of the cells. And then I come back and say, yeah, but the chemistry of the culture medium is based on your perceptions and your beliefs. And I say, why is that relevant? Because if you change your perceptions, you change your beliefs, you change the chemistry. And when you change the chemistry, by definition, you change the genetic activity of the cells. And all of a sudden it says, well, wait, what does that mean? It says, you are not a victim of your genetics. You are a master of your genetics because it's your perception that adjusts your biology. Change your perception 
and your biology changes virtually instantaneously. As a matter of fact, uh, it's been shown you can change gene activity in shortness of eight hours of just changing your belief system. And so all of a sudden it says we are coming from a world where you look at your life as health and, and problems with your biology, emotions, behavior as being part of a breakdown of a physical machine, and you blame it on the genes, and then the new biologist says completely false that your health and your behaviors are totally due to your uh, um, uh, consciousness, your perception of the environment, because your consciousness and your perception is translated into chemistry, which then adjusts your genetics. So a good perception, a positive perception, a love perception, releases chemistry that enhances health. But a stress perception actually releases chemistry that compromises your health. And now is recognized that up to 90% of doctor visits are due to the consequence of stress. So basically it says the perception of stress debilitates the, the cells by putting stuff in the culture medium that, that shuts down the power of the cells. And then I say, so what's the relevance? I am not a victim of my biology. If anything, I'm a victim of my beliefs. And if I change my beliefs, I can change my biology. And to give you just an insight of how specific this mind is in controlling every aspect of your biology, uh, listen to this. It's a true story. You can hypnotize somebody, and you tell this person while they're in hypnosis that you're going to touch them with a burning cigarette on their arm. And then what you do is you touch them with your fingertip. But to the mind of the person in hypnosis, they didn't see it as a fingertip. They, their hypnosis mind saw, oh, I just got burned by a cigarette. I say, well, what's the relevance? I say, you touch them with your fingertip, and then within a few minutes they have a blister, right exactly where you touch them. I say, how did a blister form here? I didn't burn them. I say, the mind perceived the burn and created the blister in response to its perception, not the reality. It's perception. And I say, mm -hmm. why is that relevant? Well, if perception can be specific enough to cause a blister to form specifically on this spot where I touched it, then your perception can cause a disease or aspect of any part of your body, anywhere in your body, with specific preciseness as that. And that your beliefs and your attitudes are then really uh, causing an unfolding of your health. When we have bought into the idea, no, that my health is, is a result of the unfolding of my genetic program, and it goes, no, no, you are controlling your genetic program. And, and, and why I get so excited by this and why I so appreciate, Caroline, the opportunity of talking with your audience is that people must begin to recognize is that we are powerful individuals. We control our health. And if you have a belief you don't control your health, well, then you don't. And, and people go, well, this sounds like new agey stuff. And I go, listen, first of all, number one, it's 100 years since medical science has become aware of something called the placebo effect. Mm -hmm. What's a placebo effect? Well, it's a belief effect. I say, uh, uh, Caroline, here's this new pill. Just came come from the pharmaceutical industry, the greatest advance in this technology, and it's specifically designed to handle your health issue. So this, this pill is magic. So you take this pill, it's going to heal you. You take the pill, you get better, and then you find out it was just a sugar pill. And I go, but then what caused the, the, the healing? And the answer was, well, not the sugar pill. That didn't do anything. The only thing that caused the healing was the belief in the sugar pill. And we talk about that as placebo effect. I go, yeah, but people are familiar 100 years. My positive belief can specifically change my health and uh, in my, you know, my life. 
And I go, well, that's really interesting. So what does it lead us to believe? Almost everybody's heard of placebo. And what is placebo? Well, a positive belief led to a healing. I go, yeah, that's really what it is. What people have left out, and this to me is why it's critical for the audience to understand, is that understanding placebo effect is a positive belief brings health. They never talk about what is the effect of a negative belief. And this is where the problems come from. Because it turns out a negative belief uh, impacts health as powerfully as a positive belief, but in the opposite direction. A positive belief, a placebo effect, I can take a sugar pill and heal myself. A nocebo belief is I can take a sugar pill, tell you it's a poison, you can die from it. It's like it was equally powerful, but it worked in the opposite direction. The negative belief is called a nocebo effect. And I say, well, why is this relevant? Because people don't recognize that psychologists have told us that 70% or more of our beliefs are negative, disempowering, self-sabotage. And I go, oh, my God, we've been blaming our genetics for our health issues when it turns out wrong place to put the blame. The blame comes on the belief system. It's, uh, if you believe you're going to get cancer, you can get cancer. If you believe you can't heal yourself, you can't heal yourself. And I say, well, then, but people who change their beliefs in the face of these kind of things, let's say a, a person has a severed spinal cord and the doctor says, you'll never be able to walk again. And then a certain number of these people defy that prediction and walk again. I said, well, how did they do that? And the answer was, first of all, they didn't buy the belief they would never walk again. They still entertain their, in their mind a belief, I can walk. And with that positive belief, ultimately change the chemistry of their blood, change the genetic activity of the cells that are being fed by that chemistry, and led to healing. Uh, and so basically it says, oh, my God, uh, we are not victims of, of chemistry. We're victims of programming. And that is important because if you change the program, you can re-empower your life. That is so, so true. Um, I actually have um, I met two people recently that were diagnosed with MS. And um, through yoga practice and meditation, they are completely healed. They are completely well. And um, that kind of interests me a lot because my daughter um, was diagnosed with MS in 2003 at the age of 23. And I did say to her at that time, and I didn't have the understanding that I have now, but even at that time, I said to her, you don't have to buy into that diagnosis. You do not have to take that diagnosis on. You can heal yourself. I've always kind of believed in that even before I knew I should believe in it. And so it's just amazing. I just started practicing hot yoga a week ago. Uh-huh. And um, just I just kind of I'm, I try to live a healthy lifestyle daily, but each every now and then I add something to my healthy lifestyle. So just last week I added to my healthy lifestyle hot yoga practice, and actually the lady that owns the studio is one of the pe- persons that um, was diagnosed with MS in 2003. Now she teaches yoga and owns a yoga studio. So it's the power of belief is amazing. I mean, it seems like it's it's so it should be common knowledge. It should be mainstream com, common knowledge. It's so you know to me it's so obvious that our beliefs and our thoughts dictate our health more than anything else. And 
I don't understand why it's not, you know, common knowledge. <laughs> well, let me give that, you a simple insight to that, Caroline. Is it's called okay. money. It's called money. Oh, okay. And the idea is this: if you believe you're a victim of things like genetics or your health issues and all that, then by definition, you, you're acknowledging that I'm not controlling this. I can't control this. When you acknowledge that you are powerless, then you are designed biologically to go to seek health somewhere else. I'm not going to find it in myself. I'm going to go find somebody else. And that mm-hmm. sends you to other people because you perceive yourself as a victim, and then you find a rescuer. And the rescuer makes a lot of money. But the significance is you were the one that was able to heal yourself in the beginning, but you didn't believe it. And since belief is based on the, the chemistry from your mind, if you believe you can't heal yourself, then you will not release the chemistry of healing. But you will release it when you find the right opportunity that supports your belief of healing. Uh, it, you know, it's all part of programming. And think about this. We are all capable of self-healing. And the general population, almost all of us, have grown up in families, conventional family understanding is this. When somebody is sick, we take them to the doctor. So as you're an infant, what did you learn in this infant process before age seven? And the answer is simply this. When anybody in the family is sick, we didn't say, you heal yourself. When somebody is sick, we say, well, you have to go to the doctor. Mommy's sick, she goes to the doctor. Daddy's sick, he goes to the doctor. You're sick, you have to go to the doctor. I say, okay, so what is the child learning in this process? And the learning thing is twofold. One, I'm not in charge of my health. That's it. I, I can't fix it, so I have to go do what? See, uh, number two, a specialist who will then be in charge of my health. Now, that means this. You're capable of healing yourself, but you put a belief in the front now. And the belief in the front is before I do any healing, uh, which you're not even aware that you're healing yourself, before healing occurs, what do I have to do? I have to go to the doctor. That's the belief system. Now, there's a joke, and that's why I like to tell the story. The joke is simply this. How many people get well on the way to the doctor or in the doctor's office? The number is amazing. You say, well, how, how did this happen? And I go, well, look. A, you were capable of healing yourself. B, you put a program in there from learning that says, before healing, I go to the doctor. And the jokey part is, nobody said the doctor had to do anything. What was the, what was the program? I have to go to the doctor. So if you complete the program, which is limiting your healing, because you said, I can't heal myself until I go to the doctor, I go to the doctor. What have I done? I've completed step one. And now the automatic healing process will take over. I held back my healing with a belief that says, before healing, I must go to a doctor. Uh, but the doctor didn't have to do anything. Nobody said, go to the doctor and do this. It just said, go to the doctor. So when you go to the doctor, what have you done? You released a program that was inhibiting healing until you got to the doctor's office. And then the self-healing process can start taking over again. So why this is important is a very, again, another important emphasis on the nature of placebo, nocebo, nocebo effect, negative effect. I do not heal myself. The doctor heals me. Oh, okay, go to the doctor. Now that's a placebo effect. <laughs> why? I went to the doctor. That's all I need to do. Now I'm going to get better. See, so basically uh, it's programming that disempowers you. It's a belief that you have no power that makes you powerless. Simple as that. Uh, and and the only people that really recover from these uh, very negative diagnoses, oh, you'll never walk again, or you're going to die in three months and all that, uh, people have these what are called miracle healing, spontaneous remissions. I go, what is the common 
underlying factor of all these so-called miracle healings or spontaneous remissions, and the answer is simple. That individual who expresses that amazing healing is an individual who changed their belief system. <laughs> Basically, said, you know, there, there, let's say two patients that have cancer, uh, and one patient goes in with a belief that they've learned from science that cancer is due to cells being stupid because of genes. Genes made cells stupid, and genes cause cancer. So that person goes to the doctor, gets a cancer diagnosis, and they look at the situation and they go, geez, my cells were stupid, but if the doctor cuts them out, stupid cells out, then I'm, I won't have cancer anymore. So that's the belief system. Uh, right. I say, what about the other person? The other person gets into the doctor's office, gets the same diagnosis, but, but looks at it in a different way and says, oh, man, my life is so out of harmony. My life is so out of balance. Uh, and look at this place I find myself with this cancer and all that. And it's sort of like, well, I'm going to change my life. I'm going to let go of all these stresses. Hey, I, they say I only got three months left to live. Well, then I'm going to let go of all those things that have bothered me. I don't really care anymore. I only got three months. I'm not going to let them bother me. I'm going to go on vacation. And they mm -hmm. go, they let go of everything, all the stresses and everything, and then three months and four months and five months and a year, and they have, they didn't die. I go, what happened? They changed right. the belief system, the culture medium, the stress chemicals were removed, the cells recovered their health, and they, they don't have the cancer. They have a spontaneous remission. And I said, what about the person that thought the cancer cells were doing their own thing? They were just a victim of the cancer cells. They had nothing to do with their cancer except that, the genes did it. I go, well, then their belief system is if you take the stupid cells out, then I should never get cancer again. And those are the ones that almost get the cancer back all the time. I say, why? Mm -hmm. Because it wasn't the cells being stupid. They were responding to the thought processes, the beliefs and attitudes of the individual. If you don't change the beliefs and attitudes, the cells are back in the same environment even if you cut the cancer out. The new cancer will form. Same thing. So it says, look, we need to change. We need to change to get out of this belief of victim and start recognizing, no, you are not a victim. You absolutely control your biology and your genetics. The significance of uh, uh, multiple sclerosis, MS, is that it, it's not a genetic disease. It's, it's called an autoimmune disease. I said, oh, that's latin -y. I said, what is autoimmune? It means uh, self-destruction, uh, self-destruction. Mm -hmm. MS is wow. not a result of the cells saying, I am stupid and I am destroying myself as a stupid cell. Self-destruction means you are sending information in the system that will cause the destruction of the cells because you are creating a culture medium and you send signals into that culture medium to these cells, you will shut them down. You can shut down or activate any cells in your body based on that. And I say, why is it relevant? Because just as you mentioned, the woman that's doing the hot yoga was an MS patient, and she doesn't have it. A dear friend of mine by the name of Gary Sinclair, when I, when I saw him, he was this healthy guy. He was a, a long-distance runner. And then he showed me a picture of himself, and he was in a wheelchair with a ventilation system, keeping him alive, breathing with MS. His body was shut down. His muscles started, you know, stopped working. The breathing was labored, so he had to have a breathing apparatus to assist him. And then I'm looking at this guy standing in front of me who's a long-distance runner and full of health. I said, what was the issue here? And he said he realized at one point that he bought into the story. What's the story? Remember, because the story then 
you buy the story and make it real through your biology. You buy the story of, oh, this is going to happen to you if you have MS. First, this weakness will happen. Then you're going to lose strength here. Then you're not going to be able to walk. Then you're going to be in the wheelchair. Then you're going to lose the ability to breathe, and then you're going to die. And I go, if you buy that as a, as a true story, then what you're going to do is your brain will make the chemistry to support that story. And then guess what? You will follow through with every symptom the doctor just described. And I go, and what did Gary Sinclair do? He said, I don't believe that story. <laughs> right. I'm going to get out of this damn chair, and I'm going to make myself healthy. I am not going to buy into this story. And he had a radical change of belief. He says, I am not going to be a victim of this. I am going to master this. I'm getting out of this damn chair. Not only get out of the chair, but he became a long-distance runner. And it's like, wow, wow why? He did that not buy the diagnosis. Uh, and remember we talked about a placebo effect as a very positive effect, and the other, the, you know, a negative of belief is a negative effect on your health, nocebo effect, that's the name of it, okay? Yeah. And I say mm-hmm. whether it's a positive belief or a negative belief, either of those will control your health, but the positive belief, of course, will take you in the direction of, uh, of health and harmony, and a negative belief will take away uh, your health and, and lead to sickness and death. And I go, well, interesting, if you believe the doctor as the professional source right. of, uh, of knowledge, because you're not, and that's, that's the whole story. When we grew up during our programming, what did we learn as children? We learned, well, there are professionals that know stuff, and you're not a professional. So if a professional says it, that's based on knowledge, and you have no knowledge, so you buy what the professional says, because you're not. So now it comes to health. You're not a professional. That's the belief system. The doctor is a professional. Oh, relevance? Then whatever the doctor says becomes your truth. If the doctor lays out a, a, a diagnosis, let's say MS, and gives you this is going to happen A, then B, then C, then D, and then you're in a wheelchair, then you die. If that's the, the story and your mind has been programmed to say that it's not your choice about this, it's the profession who knows that stuff, you buy the diagnosis, you manifest it. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, my God. What is the diagnosis? It's a nocebo belief. It's a negative belief. It's a belief that you have no control, and it's a downhill spiral, and this is where you're going to end up. And guess what? Almost everybody ends up there. The doctor says you're going to die in three months. Most people die in three months. You say, how did the doctor know? Well, he said, well, because most people die in three months. I say, that's because you told them they die in three months. Yeah, and a person that stops it. believing that doesn't die in three months. Right. So, so true. we have to recognize that. Wait. Yes. Maybe our programming, which has programmed us to recognize that we're vulnerable and frail, open to uh, you know liabilities such as bacteria, viruses, parasites, sugar. Oh, don't eat the sugar, you're going to die. Don't smoke the cigarette, you're going to get cancer. And I go, if you believe these things, then those uh, prognostications then become truth. You create from your belief. Now, um, Bruce, can you share with with the listeners some um, key things that they might can try to help um, analyze their belief system and maybe reprogram? Um, you know, for, I, I always say to people, um, find out what your co- core beliefs are, and and when you do find them out, find out where they came from. Were they your beliefs? Are, did they come from someone else, like a parent or from a teacher or from church, wherever? Um, where did your core beliefs come from? And then analyze it and say, 
is this something I truly believe or is this something I just accepted as true? Right. right. Well, this There's is a the big whole, difference. This is the whole issue. First of all, what did we learn about epigenetics? That the genetic activity of your cells is not dependent on the genes. The genetic activity is based on the chemistry of the blood, which is then connected to the consciousness of the mind. So you, you have fear in your, in your mind, then you release fear chemicals, which actually shut down growth and can fear kills. It does. The chemistry that comes from a brain and fear will not support the growth of cells. It's for protection, mm. which means wall yourself off. Uh, and if you're in love, oh, the chemistry of love, that's a whole different thing. That enhances your growth in your health and harmony. Okay, so I say, wait a minute. First thing, belief controls my genetics. Yeah, that's called epigenetics. Okay, now I say what? Where'd you get your beliefs from? Well, that's the question you ask. Where the heck did I get my program? So may, let me give an analogy. Maybe people can catch it faster. Uh, there's a device almost everybody is familiar with today. It's called an iPod. An iPod is that little handheld uh, uh, computer-like device that plays music. And I go, okay, um, uh, you get a brand new iPod, you go to the Apple store, you buy a new iPod, you take it out of the box, and on the front of the iPod is what's called a touch screen with different commands and programs. The, the touch screen uh, uh, is creative. I can select which music I want to play. I can change the volume. I can go fast forward, backwards, pause. I can change the EQ, uh, the sound of the music. I can do all these things. That's creative. And, and to understand uh, my iPod uh, analogy, I should first emphasize this, and then we'll come back to it. Mm-hmm. The mind is controlling the chemistry of the body by affecting what chemicals the brain releases. A mind in love, different chemicals, and a mind in fear. Point. Simple. Then I say, okay, what is the mind? Now, this is where the confusion has come that has, uh, has sort of limited our abilities. And, uh, and this is where the confusion comes from. The mind is actually two minds. They're not the same. They work together, but they're independent of each other. They learn in different ways, and they have different functions. And yet we have just put them together and said, the mind. And I go, no, wait. The mind is two parts. It's called the conscious mind and the subconscious mind. The subconscious mind, the 90% of the brain probably, was there before the conscious mind, because conscious mind is the latest evolution and, and it's expressed very fully in humans. And I go, okay, wait a minute. So what's the difference between the two? I said, well, they have different functions and they learn in different ways. The conscious mind, the latest evolution, it, what makes us so different than animals below us is animals below us generally operate from subconscious mind, which is reflexes, stimulus response, push the button, kick the knee, you know, whatever. It's just, it's a no thought process. So most lower organisms, their behavior is just stimulus response. You just push the button and they do a behavior. Then you get to the conscious mind and go, oh, in that evolution, this mind is not uh, a stimulus response mind. This is a creative mind. Oh, that's why humans are different. A lower animal, you push the button, you make the response. A human, between pushing the button and creating the response, there's consciousness. That means that you can respond or not respond or change the response. That's creative. You can do what you want. So I say you got a creative mind, and the other mind is a habit mind, the stimulus response, habit mind. Subconscious is habit. Conscious is creative. Okay? So going back to the iPod, the, the touch screen on the front where you can – select the songs and change all the characteristics, it's the equivalent of the conscious mind. Yes, I can create a playlist of music. Yes, I can change the characteristics of how it plays. I, I'm creative. And I say, okay, now 
let's put the story back into operation, and here it goes. You go to the Apple store, you buy a new iPod, you take it out of the box, you turn it on, and on the front screen you say, push play. And I say, push play. Nothing happened. And all those people that know around you are looking at you going, how silly, you don't understand. First you have to download the music. Then you can create the playlist. Uh, And so a brand-new iPod cannot be creative because there's nothing in there. Take a baby that's just being born and pretend that it could speak. Just pretend. The baby is just crowning. It's coming out of the birth canal. It's looking around. We're all looking at the baby being born. And we ask the baby, we ask a question. We say, tell us something. And the baby looks up at you and goes, I I don't know anything. I just got here. Ah, it's an iPod with no data. So I can't tell you anything. I, have, I don't understand anything. So I said, oh, so then before the conscious mind can work, like the iPod, you have to download data. Then the conscious mind can be creative with the data. So I said, oh, the human brain mind is like the iPod. The download are programs that go into the subconscious before the activation of the conscious mind can become creative. It, turns out that the first seven years of our lives, our brain is primarily in download, downloading behavior. Mm-hmm. Because I can't be creative with consciousness if I don't have any behavior to be creative with. So the first seven years is the download process. I say, and this is critical, I say, so um, where do you get these programs <laughs> that are your subconscious downloads? I say, by observing other people, primarily your mother and father, then your siblings, and then the community in which you're growing up. So the first seven years of your life, your brain is designed to download programs. It's in a state of hypnosis. It's called theta in electroencephalograph. Uh, Theta is characteristic of imagination. So, yeah, you you look at kids and you say, ah, kids under seven uh, are uniquely capable of mixing their imaginary world with the real world because that's the operation of the brain, theta, imagination. But theta is also hypnosis. So it says... How do I know how to behave? And I say, why is that important? And this then gives us the reason. I say, you want to be a functional member of a family and a functional member of a society and a community? You have to know a bunch of rules to be a member of the community. I say, how many rules? 10, 50, 100, 10,000, probably more closer to 10,000. <laughs> I say, how you behave, how you respond to people, how you talk to them. It's different for your father talks to kids in a different way than he talks to adults, and he talks yet in a different way to a policeman. It's like, oh, my God, you have to know all these nuances. I say, teach an infant 10,000 rules. And you say, I can't teach an infant 10,000 rules. What, are you going to read a book? What am I going to do, put them down in a high chair and teach them? No, it won't work. So how does a child learn 10,000 rules to become a member of society? The answer is, oh, first seven years, the brain is in record. It's like a video camera. It observes other people, records their behavior, and becomes your own. And I go, oh, ready? The subconscious programs in the first seven years, the fundamental programs of how to deal with life and how to respond to life and, and all that, are not from your creative wishes and desires. They came from a download of observing other people. So relevance, the fundamental beliefs in your iPod subconscious mind are beliefs that came from other people, their beliefs. And they don't necessarily conform in any way to your personal wishes and your desires. That's the conscious mind. So your subconscious programs are primarily other people's behaviors, and psychologists will tell you 70% or more of those programs are negative, disempowering, uh, self-sabotaging, limiting. 
that's what we learn as kids. Oh, you can't do this and you can't do that. And who do you think you are? And you're not that smart and uh, you don't deserve this. These are the kinds of things parents say to kids while they're in the record mode. And these mm-hmm. are the programs in our subconscious mind, 70% negative. And you go, okay, and well, screw other, it. What's that, Carolyn? The, the, the other thing is, too, um, I have a, a five-year-old grandson who comes, um, spends the holidays with me, and we're, he and I he are always debating on what he should watch because I noticed that the cartoons, and I've noticed this for a while, cartoons are full of violence. And and I will not allow any, uh, and he'll say, okay, Mima, he calls me Mima, okay, Mima, there's no violence in this one. Okay, it's like, and I'll watch it, and I'm like, okay, you can watch that. But there's so much violence in cartoons, and we're we're plopping our, our toddlers, our infants, and three-year-olds, and four-year-olds, and five-year-olds in front of these cartoons that are full of violence. And I'm like, Absolutely. <laughs> and, I'm and like, that becomes a program. Accepting yes. violence. That's just what's mm-hmm. wrong. It's not so much doing violence. It's accepting right. violence as a way of life. Yeah. So yeah, when you watch the normal. news, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's so disempowering. Because if violence is a way of life, then you've got to recognize, holy jeez, I better be protective of myself. Why? Mm-hmm. Because the world is out there to get us. Uh, that's the belief system. It's a Darwinian theory of mm-hmm. evolution that says life is a struggle for survival with a competition for fitness. Right. So is, right. what does that mean? It means the average person in this world has got to believe that it's a rat race, dog-eat-dog world. You go out there, and if you don't participate and strive to become mm-hmm. the most powerful person, then you're going to be overrun by somebody else. So mm-hmm. the whole world is built on this nature of competition and violence, and it's acceptable. And then it's in the cartoons, and it's in the news, and it's everywhere. And everybody yeah. goes, oh, yeah, that's just the way life is. It's like that is Totally BS, and uh, uh, BS yeah. in this case means belief system. Uh, that's right. called a belief system. Uh, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> because we bought into it. And the fact right. is, is life that way? And the answer is no. Life is actually based on altruism, cooperation, helping each other. Evolution is not based on competition. It's based on cooperation. It's a complete, right. abs- a- absolute opposite of the program. You want to evolve? It's not through violence. It's not through aggression. It's through helping other people. And, right. and this is why our, our civilization is facing the biggest crisis of all. The mm-hmm. amount of violence and the amount of competition and conflict has completely undermined the health of human civilization. It is destroying civilization because they're destroying each other. And remember we yeah. said, what was multiple sclerosis? Autoimmune what? disease, self-destruction. Yeah. Well, civilization is at this moment in the most critical autoimmune disease state because we're facing our own extinction. The health of the civilization is so bad that, uh, that people are dying. The healthcare crisis is a major effort of all, that we are destroying the environment around us because of a lack of knowledge. And I go, why is this relevant? Because civilization is facing autoimmune disease, self-destruction. I say, yeah, but what's the cause of it? The same as that multiple sclerosis, a belief system that is not in harmony with the nature of life. And therefore, our programs do not support our evolution. They do not support our health. They activate stress. How how significant is stress? 90%, it is believed, up to 90% of doctor visits are due to stress. And we've been claiming that genes are causing all the illness. So here's another little fact. Less than 1% of disease is based on genetics. And you go, wait, if less than 1% of disease is based on genetics, then 
How did 99% of the other people have disease? Where did that disease come from? And the answer is stress. Yes. And, and so we are living out of harmony. We're living out of balance. And out of harmony and out of balance, by its definition, does not support homeostasis, harmony, and balance. And if we don't, we're not in homeostasis, harmony, and balance, then we are, are, are going off the deep end, and, and the stress is killing us. You say, well, how can stress kill you when genetics control life? And I go, well, that was the whole story we started with. Genetics do not control life. What controls life is the culture medium, the blood, and stress uh, when a mind is in stress. Releases chemistry, stress hormones, inflammatory agents that conflict with health. And all of a sudden you see, oh, my God, just my belief of fear has caused my illness. And the answer is exactly what caused your illness, not your genes. And we blame genes for everything. I mean, it's like, uh, look at this, um, the breast cancer gene. My God, just saying that word, breast cancer gene, implies this is a gene that causes breast cancer. Everybody goes, yeah, yeah, this BRCA1, that's a breast cancer gene. Angelique Jolie sees that her mother and her grandmother or whatever died from this breast cancer, recognizes right. says she could have the BRCA1 gene and therefore get breast cancer, so she opts out of that by what? Mastectomy. <laughs> if I remove right. my breast, I will not get breast cancer. And then she realizes later, it's like, yeah, but the same gene can affect uterine cancer and ovarian cancer, so then now she has a uterus out and her ovary out saying, all the parts are out, I will not get cancer. <laughs> and now she thinks she's healed herself. Here's the problem. Uh... Right. Did the BRCA gene cause cancer? And the answer is absolutely not. <laughs> I can tell you 100%, absolutely not. The BRCA gene does not cause cancer. You say, well, how can you say that? And I go, simple fact. 50% of the women with a BRCA1 gene do not get cancer. I say, well, what's the relevance? They possess the gene. They don't get the cancer. What's the point? The gene did not by itself cause cancer. What was the cancer cause? The gene plus stress caused cancer. <laughs> Why is that relevant? Get rid of the stress. The cancer is not there. Right. And, and what's the biggest stress of, of, of the BRCA1? Having the gene. is. <laughs> oh, my God, I got the gene. I'm now completely stressed out. Now it's like, okay, now you're on the way toward cancer. And, and mm-hmm. the reality was the gene did not right. cause cancer. And, and, and so all of a sudden... The, yeah, the, and the, so the, whole, the reality... Yes, go ahead. She go didn't. Ahead. She didn't. Um, Angelie Jolie didn't have to get rid of all her parts. All no. she had to do is get rid. Of, get rid of the stress. Exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, because she's buying into the old belief: genes mm-hmm. determine fate. And it's like right. that's an old belief. It is now right. environment determines fate. Well, if she lives in a stressful environment, the the same programming that her mother lived in that got her the cancer then she'll get the cancer. Uh, so let me connect you with this story. Then you'll see the picture mm-hmm. gets bigger. They looked at the fate of children adopted into families that have cancer. Mm-hmm. And what did they find? That the adopted child will get the same family cancer with the same probability as any of the natural siblings. And then I go, right. but what's important? The adopted child came from completely different genetics. So right. what was it that caused the cancer? not the genetics, programming. So the programming is propagated like genes. Why? Because you got the programming in the first seven years. And, and so how did you get it? Just the way your parents got it, just the way their parents got it. They observed their parents 
downloaded the program in the first seven years. So if there's a stress-creating situation of how you respond to life that your mother lived with, then by definition, growing up in that family and observing your mother, you would have downloaded the exact same behavior that caused the cancer. So the result is you can get the cancer because you had the gene? No, because you had the behavior that caused that. So uh, it really becomes incumbent upon us to let go of the most disempowering belief of all time is that the fate of your life is, is not in your hands but in the control by genes when it turns out this is totally false because you are the one that controls the genes. This is so true. This is so true. It's, um, you know, it's so amazing, like I, I had said to you earlier, um, that science, and new science, is um, proving um, what spirituality has been teaching, and that, in, in a nutshell, is you change your thoughts, you change your mind, you change your life. Um, you can heal yourself, um, as spirituality has been teaching that for eons, and now science is proving it, the new science, the new biology, quantum physics. Um, when I first I saw What the Bleep in 2007, I was like, wow. I was like, science is proving all of this. Yeah. And I still, I'm still like, why don't, peop, why don't more people understand this? Why do, but, I, but then I, you answered the question, and I kind of even answered the question. Look at what we're feeding our toddlers on television. Yeah. You know, what's, look, look at what's in the news media daily, three times a day, even before you're going to bed. You, I stopped watching the news in 2001. I have not watched the new, Good idea. news broadcast. Yes. Because that's a no-sebo effect. <laughs> yes, since 9-11. I have, and it was just my spirit, and I didn't know why at the time. In 2001, um, I, it just my spirit said, turn it off and don't ever turn it back on again. And I was obedient to that. You know, that, and that came from within. And um, it's, you know, like you were saying, we believe that we have to go to a doctor to heal ourselves or to get well when all of true healing comes from within your belief, it's your beliefs and your environment and, and how much stress you're putting on yourself that is causing the illness. I, I 100%. say all I say 100%. I say Actually, 100%. 99%. Let, let's say 99 for this because we acknowledge okay. that less than 1% of disease, so we'll give it the whole 1%, uh, is okay. due to genetics. But that means 99% of disease has nothing to do with genetics. Exactly. And that's the part, that's obviously the vast, vast majority of illness when you only count 1% as, oh, okay, that's an organic problem. 99% is a lifestyle. Exactly. Exactly. It's, yeah, a lifestyle and belief because, yes. and you can, you can change, you, you can begin your healing in a moment when you, when you change your belief about um, your illness. Um, that, that's how spontaneous remissions occur. Those people that yeah. at the moment of a diagnosis said, oh my God, I am involved with my illness. Then I am personally going to be responsible for the illness and I will also be personally responsible for healing the illness. Exactly. Because I have to do that. I'm not getting it from somebody else. Exactly. Exactly. That's the connection right there. Once you realize you created this illness and own it, and you know that gives you that empowers you to reverse it. 
like, okay, Absolutely. if I if I created it, I can get rid of it. You know, so that that gives you the empowering, um, and like you said, this whole the whole victim mentality that society, um, mainstream society, is kind of stuck in. Um, this victim mentality. They're a victim of their genes or they're a victim of their environment. They're a victim of their health. You know, they're just, you know, along for the ride. They didn't contribute any of it. It's, it's so, um, you know, uh, what I'm finding, new science and um, spirituality um, speaks to the opposite of that programming, that yeah. you are in control. You are Absolutely. in total control, and it, it, like you said, it, this is wonderful to be bringing this good news uh, to the world um, because I, I'm finding, um, because I, I'm on the Internet all the time, I don't watch mainstream television, um, and being online, you see that more and more and more people are waking up, and that's why I, I got the inspiration to do this show to, to just at help awaken um, the mankind to the truth of who they are. Um, they are not victims. They are powerful human beings, and that is amazing. The work that you've done. The book. Now, please let, let tell the listeners how they can find you and um, um, get a copy, a hold of your book, and all of that. Okay. Give, okay. Uh, number one is I have a simple website, and it's brucelipton.com. So that's simple. And on that website, under resources, there's all kinds of articles that are free, download. Everything we talked about, there's scientific articles on that. There's so many things. There are videos, the YouTube things, hundreds of these things. So lots of information is available for free on that website. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's, the information has been summarized in three different books. Biology of Belief is the classic book. It's uh, been 10 years now, and, and it's uh, still selling the same for 10 years because every day as new people wake up, <clears throat> this is a resource, this book, right. of how your life is actually controlled uh, by you. And if you understand it, then how you can use that science to take back the power. And that's the whole idea. Everybody mm-hmm. should get their power back because uh, we must get out of the victim mentality, which is a program, because that yes. will limit you. If you believe you're a victim, then you will never get out of the hole because uh, your belief system will, yes, I'm a victim, then I must create a life that shows I'm a victim because then it's in harmony with my belief. And so uh, we propagate that, and it's really time for a change. So that's really important. And um, uh, a more recent book that people, it, it's similar kind of thing, but it's called The Honeymoon Effect. And okay. the honeymoon effect is how come your life could suck all the way up until you meet this one person and then all of a sudden it's like overnight you fall in love and head over heels and then you're healthy and happy and energized and, and you, you get so excited you can't wait for the next day because it's heaven on earth. And up to that minute of meeting that person, this world was n- not anything near heaven on earth. Then you meet this person, it's heaven on earth. Uh, and I said, what happened? And now we know is it's the one time in your life where you stop playing the programs that we got from that first seven years, where the first time in your life where all those negative, disempowering, sabotaging beliefs do not play, and your behavior is now controlled by your wishes and desires. Well, what's your wish and desire? To have heaven on earth, and guess what? When you fall in love and you're not playing the program, you manifested heaven on earth. Unfortunately, the honeymoon is short-lived because when life gets busy, 
and you start thinking, that's when you default back to the uh, uh, original programming, and then all of a sudden the honeymoon starts to disappear. I, I, I use the book, uh, The Honeymoon Effect, because most people have had at least some little touch of an experience mm-hmm. that when they fell in love, whether it was just a few days or not, right. something profoundly right. different happened in their lives. And, and, right. and what it is a reflection of what happens if you're running your life from the programs you got from others, which is 95% of the day, versus what happens if you run your program from your creative conscious mind, which is wishes and desires. The answer is conscious mind, manifest heaven on earth, subconscious mind, turned it back into the scary reality that we live in. Right. And I also, with that um, meeting, the, the quote-unquote love of your life, I always stress to people, especially young people, um, the love of your life is you. I mean, it's beautiful to meet, you know, they're saying, I want to meet my better half or my other half. No, you were not half of a person. We are whole in of ourselves. And the love that you're seeking is within you. And when you tap into that love and then you meet another person that has tapped into their love, then that's powerful. But that, that honeymoon effect can go on forever yes. when you learn to love yourself. 100%, yes. and you're absolutely right, Caroline. Before you can fall in love, you have to overcome the issue of not loving yourself. And I said, what do you mean not loving yourself? And when we do uh, uh, belief change programs, uh, one of the things we have people test for in their subconscious beliefs is the question, or not question, the statement. You make a statement, uh, and then you test for whether it's true or not using kinesiology, and the statement is, I love myself. It turns mm. out over 80% and generally around 90% of the people in every audience will not test positive to that. Mm-hmm. I say, why not? And I said, because the programming in the first seven years is so critical of us. Parents were acting like coaches trying to get us to conform. You can do this and you're not good at that and you can't do that and all these kind of things. And it turns out that programming is so self-critical that when we go back into our subconscious minds, we don't see ourselves in the sight of love. We see ourselves as not being good enough. And, mm-hmm. and the problem is that if you're don't see yourself as lovable, then in truth, how can anybody else love you? Just how simple truth. How, I don't find myself lovable, and you say you love me. Then my mind goes, well, what kind of quality control does she have? <laughs> if she says she loves me, and I know I'm not lovable. And what will I do? I will sabotage any love relationship to conform to the belief that I am not lovable because that was the critical assessment that I received from my parents in the first seven years. Right. Very true. Very true. So, and then now your latest book is entitled The Honeymoon um, Effect. That's the latest one. Oh, that's the latest. Okay, then there's one in the middle that you didn't mention. Spontaneous Evolution, which to me is a very exciting book because it says you look at the world, you know deep in your heart, in your gut, that something is wrong, that civilization is in a very precarious position, which we are. Science Mm -hmm. has recognized that we're facing a mass extinction due to the way we destroyed the environment under our feet, and that we must evolve. And it's interesting because crisis, the things that we face today, are the things that push evolution for a very simple reason. When you face a crisis, you have two choices. Continue doing what you're doing and make the crisis even worse, or stop what you're doing and do something completely different. And that's when evolution comes in when you stop the old program and start to create something new. And therefore, human civilization is not a very critical threshold that says the way we've been living on this planet, which is self-destructive autoimmune disease, uh, is not only self-destructive of human civilization, it's destructive of the ecosystem. 
and that yeah. the only way out is to change our behavior, change our beliefs, and evolve. And so we're facing evolution at this moment. And the Spontaneous Evolution book gives us insight of how this evolution has occurred, how civilizations have come and gone, and how this civilization, the one we're in right now, is coming to an end. But it doesn't mean the end of humans. It just means the end of an old way of living because right. we're going to move into a different way of living if we're going to survive. And so we're on the edge exactly. right now. Yeah. And I do believe, I believe um, mankind is evolving, and and that's why I, I personally believe part of that evolution is recognizing that we are literally all connected. Um, like I said, science at the beginning of the show, science has proven we are, um, quantum physics has proven we are literally connected. We're all one. I think when when you were talking and uh, describing cells earlier, um, I think of us as each individual little cells of God. You know, we're all connected to God, and we're a little cell of God, and we're all con- So by being connected to God, we're all connected to each other. And I do uh-huh. believe that's going to be a big uh, uh, step in the evolution process of mankind when man realizes, yeah, we are all connected to each other, and we're all connected to God. And when that becomes known, um, there will be peace on earth. <laughs> Absolutely. So, I and agree I 100%. <laughs> and, yes. and, in fact, I was not a spiritual person. I didn't believe in any of that stuff. I was a scientist and let go of that right. spirituality. And yet, through studying the cells and observing their behavior, it revealed the nature mm-hmm. of uh, our spirituality. I mean, I was not a spiritual person, and all of a sudden, understanding the nature of the self, oh, my God, I'm not even in here. <laughs> and that, uh, you know, it really gives us a whole new perspective on why life and our biology and all that, and uh, it gives us a new insight. And as you said, once you understand this new insight, there's a new evolution on this planet. Yes, yes. Well, thank you so much. We have definitely, we actually uh, passed the hour, which is fine. Um, but thank you. I am so honored. I, I'm such a big um, admirer of your work. And I'm going to have other scientists on the show, which I'm great. Um, Dr. Uh, Dean Radden and Dr. Larry Dors- Dorsey mm-hmm. are coming, upcoming guests on the show. So because great. I do want, I want the show to show that it is not just spirituality, but science and spirituality are both saying this. So if you're more, like you said, you were, you know, not very spiritual, you're a scientist. So if a person's more leaning towards science, then we have that. If you're more leaning towards spirituality, we have that. So um, thank you so much. I appreciate uh, you coming on to Awake to Oneness Radio. And um, I I just can't thank you enough. Well, I want to thank you again because my great desire is to offer this really good information to an audience, and you provide an audience of people seeking answers, uh, cultural creatives by definition. And so the mm-hmm. people in the audience are those people that are creating a new evolution. So I, I want to thank you for the opportunity to talk to them about their ability to empower their own lives. Thank you. Thank you. And you have a great rest of your day. And I hope by by via email we'll keep in touch. I hope so too. Thank you, and, and thank you, dear audience. Thank you very much. And, ho- and hopefully, I'll get to meet you in person one day. That would be great as event. well. That would be that great. would be awesome. Thank you, <laughs> well, thank you so much. Okay, you have a great evening. Thank you. Okay. All right. Bye bye.